DJ Simulationistas. Sup? With Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin and let's roll. Welcome to DJ Simulationistas. Sup? Sup? This is Janice Pellianis. And Dan Raymer. Dan, thanks for joining us. Oh, yes. Thanks for I really, I really joining. missed you at our book club. Oh, sorry about <laughs> yes. that. That was uh, certainly a senior moment. I, <laughs> I actually read the book, um, and I thought a lot about it, and... Uh, somehow I got it in my mind that it started an hour after um, it ended. And so I showed up, got online, and no one was there. I'm really interested in your thoughts because, you know, Jeff was on the call and um, Laura Rock and uh, Grace and Jenny and um, the rest of the gang. And we talked about some really interesting things that I, I would love to fill you in on, and I would love to pick your brain about uh, your thoughts around the, the same right. sort of issues. Um, for our listeners, I guess I should say what we read. Yes. We read Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead by Brene Brown. So basically, it, it I... In very, very brief, I think, and you can fill in if, if you don't think the same, but I think she talks about how we get in the way of ourselves and how daring greatly by showing our vulnerability is a practice and uh, a vision toward transformative change to um, becoming better people and, in our case, be becoming better educators. So I think she really talks about vulnerability and imperfection and how to embrace it. I think that's a great summary. Uh, books like that are often way too touchy-feely for me. Yeah, uh, I was <laughs> I was wondering about that. Being an engineer uh, by training and a, a cold-hearted male by, by uh, uh, birth, <laughs> I, um, I don't find, you know, self-help books and touchy-feely kinds of kinds of books all that interesting uh probably because it shows my vulnerability and <laughs> and uh so i have to admit that this book really resonated with me and it especially resonated with me about something i've been saying for a long time about debriefing and that is that debriefing is so difficult and simulation is so difficult because uh, people's identities are on the line. Um, the one thing that bothered me about about her book is that she um, talks a lot about shame and she uh, bills herself as a shame researcher and uh -huh. she kind of uh, um, uh, equates or 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 uh, uh, tries to establish that. 
um, that the vulnerability that most of us carry around with us is the fear of shame. And, and to me, that, that word is kind of a strong word. Um, and I like to think of it as um, uh, our identity, that the way we think about ourselves and the way we think other people uh, should think about us uh, doesn't match, and that's what makes us so vulnerable. You know, we have, a, we have an identity, we know who we are, we think we know who we are, we know who we want to be, and when we go through a difficult conversation or a debriefing or we've gone through a simulation and, you know, we, I, think, I think it's just very, very natural to fear that in the simulation you won't appear to the people around you who you actually care about in a, in a way. Um, you will not appear to be who you think think you are or who you think they should think you are <laughs> and that you show weakness and if you make an error or you, um, um, you know, don't, don't shine in the way that you want to see yourself, uh, I, guess, uh, I guess there's some shame, if you will, that, that stands in your way. I'm really glad you're bringing up this word shame because it was actually the very first thing we talked about in the book club. And there was some questions around how Brene Brown had defined shame. And she, her, you know, she gave a number of definitions. I think it was like, there were four elements of it. And the first was the fear of being disconnected something about being disconnected with other people and a few of the the people in the book club just really didn't agree with that part of the definition like where was what does she mean well it might have been that they just couldn't understand what she meant about the being disconnected and I think you're speaking to where I think at least what I thought she meant about being disconnected because my response was she talks about shame as being a social concept. And so you need people to feel shame or there needs to be another person involved in feeling shame. And so we seek to be connected generally socially with other people. And so it's a connectedness concept. What do you think about that? Oh, I think it's totally about other people, uh, be it your teacher or your peers or your interprofessional colleagues. You know, imagine you're an obstetrician and you've been practicing for five years and uh, we put you through a shoulder dystocia simulation and uh, in the debriefing it's pointed out that you were pulling too hard. And, uh, and so that often happens in our obstetrical simulations. And so, you know, does, uh, does the obstetrician think, uh, uh, oh, thank you so much for pointing that out. I will be better, perhaps to some extent. But I think the overriding emotional feeling is, oh my God, all of my fellow obstetricians here think I'm not competent 
that I don't know how to deal with a shoulder dystocia, that I pull too hard and that I don't even know it. And these nurses here who are trying to help me and pushing, they count on me and they respect me. And now they're going to be walking around the unit saying, uh, uh, you know, don't go to her. Don't go to her as your obstetrician. She doesn't know what she's doing. And the instructor uh, who is the judge here who um, judges all the obstetricians who come through here and do this drill, uh, they're going to think that I'm uh, low rated and that my re my reputation will be um, uh, uh, sullied and uh, somehow that'll get out. You know, all of those things are just vulnerabilities, most of them imagined, all of them about other people, um, not about, oh, thank you for correcting my technical error here. Uh, I'll be better now. I mean, when you think about what causes shame and and when, you know, and putting yourself out there to practice vulnerability. You know, I, I think it's a lot like many things that we teach and do that it takes practicing it and realizing the results to make you actually want to practice more. Does that make sense? Yes. I, I, I just, I, I agree that it's very difficult that, that our sense of identity and our vulnerability around that is very deep-seated. I love what, um, uh, so, so this is so funny because as you know, I try to stay away from gender issues as much as possible. And there was a section <laughs> in her book um, talking about how male shame and female shame are quite different. Uh -huh. And uh, I, you know, my, my blood pressure started to rise. I wanted to argue with her until I read it and realized She's absolutely right on. And so I'll give you an example. Um, yesterday I was playing tennis. Uh, I was playing tennis with a male friend of mine who uh, uh, were pretty much at the same level and we play a lot together. And we were playing doubles and, uh, and, and we were winning. I was up at the net and he decided that the best strategy was to hit the ball as hard as he could right at me. And really good tennis players don't flinch. They stick their racket out and put the ball away. Amateur tennis players like me can't help but physically flinch from the fear of the ball hitting them. And so that's what I did. And the ball went right into the net. And I was enraged. And I was enraged because I considered it so humiliating so shameful that as a male, I should be strong in the face of this approaching tennis ball and that it should not defeat me. <laughs> so, so, so wait so a minute, was it the tennis ball that created the shame and the humiliation? Well, it was that, it was that, he, it was that he hit it to me like that. So the day before... 
I happened to be playing in a uh, uh, foursome with three women, all of whom were very strong tennis players, probably better than me. So exactly the same thing happened. One of them returned to serve really hard, right at my face, just as I was stepping forward. And it came right at my face, and I, I heard her shriek. And she shrieked, and I imagined what she was thinking was, oh, I don't want to hurt his feelings. He's going to feel he's not going to like me anymore because I hit him in the face and made him, you know, miss this ball. I uh, flinched, stuck up my racket, and it hit my racket and went off in an angle that made me look like a professional tennis player. I won the point and, uh, and I was so proud and so relieved that I wasn't humiliated by the approaching tennis ball. So I just thought this was, this captured, you know, what she said about men and women that I imagine so the woman was her fear, her vulnerability was about our relationship. Uh-huh. And my fear was about appearing to be weak as a man. Uh-huh. And, and so <laughs> I just, uh, I've given up. It's true. <laughs> so I want to take this to teaching and learning because that's why I chose this book. Yeah. I chose it because I one of my new, as you know, one of my passion the role of vulnerability in teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. And the reason I chose it, I think how it started was, um, and I told I told the story in the book club, so I'll, I'll tell it briefly with you. And I think you've probably heard the story, which is when I took my kids to archery camp and my son was running up to us with his certificate, big smile on his face, and he's like, Mom, I did the best, which was really impressive because they're high school students. And I was like, oh, that's really awesome. And then Gianna, my daughter, is running behind him with big smiles on her face and her certificate. And she goes, and I did the worst. And I just love the way she's just so naturally vulnerable. And it just makes me love her. And the thing is, you know, Jenny made the point in the book club, well, it's probably probably has to do with past relationships and knowing what their strengths and what they're good at. And but, you know, I realize when I tell people that story, it's when they hear Gianna's response that makes them smile. And and so I started, you know, studying it in when we teach and we had this one participant and he was just like he had the natural also like Gianna the natural ability to just be vulnerable and I had started to realize that he just made me want to be with him more and teach him more and give him more feedback and work with him to make him better and it taught me that if I could be vulnerable as a learner and as a person it changes the the way other people interact with me in a way where they they'll want to help me more and it's kind of like a win-win if you could just be naturally honest about what you suck at (laughs) that 
people can connect with you better and they want to connect with you better and they're motivated to help you help yourself and and that sort of thing i i i so totally agree with that and i've experienced that so so many times it's uh when you're debriefing and you run up against someone who's completely defensive and shuts down and will not show any vulnerability the 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 decisions they made the judgments the actions they took were all because of the simulation and in real life they would have done better and uh, they're just resistant in every way those people are really difficult to debrief and really difficult to help you know i always try but i feel like i'm not getting anywhere contrasted with the people who can show some vulnerability and say yeah you know i really got fooled on that i i you know was thinking anaphylaxis but i didn't you know check all the vital signs and you know i really you know that's so important that i'm able to you know do better uh in my diagnostic process uh that thanks for helping me and then you want to keep helping them it's just it's just so natural yeah. on the flip on the flip side i think you know showing showing vulnerability if you come across as a know-it-all and you're lecturing at people um they're you know you're not showing any vulnerability they're not going to want to work with you if you say something um you know even as simple as you know i'm no expert on this but um uh you know anything that shows that you recognize that you're imperfect and that's easy um uh i can do that anytime um that th that i think helps people connect with you they want to help you help them they want you to ask more questions they right. want to teach you um and in doing that they learn something i think it really you know being able to tap into people's vulnerability is just the magical ingredient in debriefing and teaching yeah. and learning in general i agree and you know so much of the book i thought spoke to our basic assumption um, which for our learners, I think I should probably summarize, I mean, our, our listeners, that I should summarize that um, we, we try our very best to hold what we call the basic assumption for each other and for our learners at CMS, which states that we believe that everyone participating in activities at CMS is intelligent, is capable, cares to do their best, and wants to improve. Um, and I from reading this book and from trying to apply some of what I've read in the book to our teaching and learning practice, I feel now that I need to add to that basic assumption because I realized I had a bit of a bias with this one participant in that one course that I worked with him a little bit more than others. And I, f I now have to add to that basic assumption that everyone participating in activities at CMS is vulnerable and in some way and they might not be showing it in right now and they might not have the skills of vulnerability or the knowledge about 
or experience with vulnerability to have the ability to show that. And so it's like I have to, you know, not have that bias towards one person who does have that natural ability to be vulnerable and make me want to work with them more. And and I think adding ourselves to that basic assumption, uh, adding adding the phrase uh, that you suggested is important as well, that it's critical that we are able to show our vulnerability to say that we, um, you know, are not expert in, uh, in, you know, some aspects of whatever, uh, whatever the topic is, um, to, you know, admit that we're, you know, mostly giving our opinion or, you know, from our own owning our own observations and being willing to admit that um, maybe our observations are incorrect uh, or maybe the inferences we we invariably make from them are incorrect and and just so critical to, you know, assume that everybody participating is vulnerable because they are. So, Dan, I am so glad you enjoyed the book. I I do like I do like hearing from you when you don't. Was there anything you didn't like? Um, well, I you know, I thought I I thought it was a little bit self-promoting that she kind of talked herself up a little bit more than I uh, than I like. But I guess I can't hold it against her because she was showing some of her own vulnerabilities and said so. Um, well, no, but you're speaking to a really important issue because I thought that she was self-promoting in a way where she was using vulnerability to self-promote. Yeah. And and that and I think what you're bringing up is there needs to be authenticity behind your vulnerability. You can't just use it as a tool to get other people to be to listen to you, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, and you know, there's a fine line uh uh or I'm not sure what the right expression is. You know, when you when you give a talk, I learned that it's really important to start your talk off with something personal, and I've learned to always um, start a talk off with something personal and something self-deprecating, and that's been a really successful formula for me. I think I learned it from seeing other people do that. So, at what point does that become manipulative i'm Uh trying to manipulate the audience to force them to like me because i'm showing my vulnerability and my personal weakness and the self-deprecation and you know i think there's a fine line you can you can carry it too far and um you know it can be the intention deep down could be more manipulative than it ought to be there's a difference between being purposeful and being manipulative. And right. I think I, I like to think I do it because I'm being purposeful that people will listen to me more intently if I can connect with them early on in the talk. And a way to do that is to be self-deprecating. And so, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a really 
you know, really um, uh, artistic point of how far do you go before it becomes uh, manipulative. And uh, so that was the only thing you didn't like the self promotion. Uh, yeah, that and I thought the word shame was probably overdone uh, and that that was a bit a bit too much. Uh, you know, as a book to read it, you know, kind of uh, it could have been it, it, it could have been a uh, four page paper because <laughs> the, the content points were widely separated by lots of jabber and and examples and some of which were not very meaningful to me so mm-hmm. i didn't think it was a you know a um a a classic read but um uh, but <laughs> i but i i certainly did like the content i think that that this notion of vulnerability um being in a very very important feature of how we how we act and how we behave is really rings quite true to me. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. I think we should close this episode. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, and I would uh, just suggest to people that uh, it is worth uh, picking up and uh, and reading the book. It does have lots and lots of um, implications being a better uh, educator. Although you said there was a misquote in it. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, so um, so it's so funny because she talked about how um, uh, she was a perfectionist. She was a reformed perfectionist, and that uh, that perfection is sort of um, uh, one of the signs of being uh, vulnerable. That you don't let anything in the world out of your control um, because you're vulnerable. And, uh, and then I found that there were, as I read, there were a couple of things that just struck me as, as wrong. So at one point she quoted the lyrics from the Eagle song, Hotel California. Can I just tell our listeners, I just need to say this. I cannot believe you were fact-checking as you were reading her book. You I know. have been fact-checking a little too much, Dan Raymer. It, it's one of my, uh, uh, you know, one of my flaws is that, you know, when I hear people misuse a word or I see it, you know, in the newspaper used incorrectly, <gasps> like when people use wait, 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 fewer finish. and less, I, it drives me crazy. Okay, I interrupted you. Tell tell yeah. everyone so, what the so, what your so fact check So in the lyrics of the <laughs> Eagle song "Hotel California," uh, there's a lyric that goes, um, uh, uh, "You can check out any time you want, but you can never leave." And uh, and she quoted it as, "You can check in any time you want, but you can never leave." And to me, there's a big difference in the meaning of that. Um, and so it just jumped right out at me. Um, so, the Dan, o- okay, the other one? The other one was that she attributed the term gremlin. So she had a whole chapter uh, dedicated to the concept of a gremlin. And she uh, she attributed it to t- Steven Spielberg and the movie Gremlins. <laughs> and what she 
you know, apparently didn't didn't realize is the term gremlin has been used in aviation from the beginning, from the time of the Wright brothers, practically, and that uh, gremlins in aircraft cause crashes. And so it predated <laughs> uh, Steven Spielberg's birth by quite a long time. <laughs> well, you know, that really um, awesome, great person, um, what is her name? Janice Pelaganis has that really <laughs> awesome quote, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Uh, yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Winston Pelaganis. <laughs> <laughs> What about there's nothing to there's there's nothing to be ashamed. No, wait, there's nothing to shame except shame itself. Do you like that one? No. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dan, Uh, let's end this. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Okay, thanks, everybody. Nice to talk to you, Janice. Bye, Dan. Bye. This has been DJ Simulationistas. What's up? With Dan Raymer and Janice Pelaganis. Thanks so much for listening. Check back next week for another episode. See you next time.